What's up, everyone? Happy December. And guess what's just right around the corner starting on January 9th? You guessed it, the Spring Collective. We are starting, like I said, Monday, the 9th of January. We go all the way through March 15th. We meet twice a week, Monday and Wednesday nights on Zoom, and you get some badass BCBAs, Liat and myself included, teaching you all about the 5th edition task list and how to pass your BCBA and BCABA exam. We keep it real as always and bring you the funniest, most X-rated, coolest, dirtiest jokes to make this shit stick. So come study with us and start your new year off with a bang so you can become a BCBA or a BCABA. Head over to www.studynotesaba.com and sign up. Love you. Mean it. Study Notes ABA. ABA in a little X-rated way. It's behavior, bitches. Hey, guys. It's Liat. And Casey. Okay, guys. So today I am super excited for our guest. Um, I go way back with this individual. And I'm excited because I, you guys know my jam on the podcast is to find people who are not in the behavior analytic space or at least titled in ABA and doing cool things or real life situations that we could relate to, you know, we could tie everything back to our principles. So today's guest was my neighbor and lived a street over from me growing up. But now he's like cool and in LA and Casey's going to tell you on the more, I'll fill you in after, but Casey, you go ahead and give like I'll the give actual, like, yeah, the formal, legit, yeah, you like give bio. Legit, yeah, 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 totally. All right. The behavior principles we will be covering today are antecedent behavior, consequences, setting events, motivating operations, establishing operations. Evocative effect, adjunctive behavior. Oh, I'm not a robot anymore. Eat punishers, contingency shape versus rule governed behavior, condition motivating operation, transitive, negative reinforcement, condition motivating operation, reflexive function of behavior, response effort. All right, so his name's Dean Moses, and he actually went on his path of recovery with a passion to help others, primarily young adults, to reach stability and sobriety. He became an active member in the 12-step community, returned to school, and he attained an addiction credential as a certified counselor. He has been trained by and collaborated with levels, many levels of professionals, consulting with psychiatrists, medical doctors, psychologists, and psychotherapists through his program director position at an internationally renowned California-based treatment provider. That's just very short that I pulled off his website, um, Spearhead Health. And so, Dean, you're going to tell us a whole lot more about yourself, but welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. All right. So like I said, guys, Dean grew up a street over from me in our neighborhood. We were, I mean... We grew up in, I'd say, like a middle-class neighborhood. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean... Absolutely. Safe, Jewish, like middle-class, upper-middle-class, like very like normal like life in Texas and Dallas. Totally. And I mean, we we both went to the same school. Dean was two years old. You're yep. two years two older, years. right? So D- Dean has a brother named Darren who was in my grade, and then... Dean was two years older, and then my sister has the oldest brother, Shane, in her grade. And you'll hear about him also in a little bit. But so we always knew each other, went to camp together, did all the fun things. But so so we grew up in the same environment, just putting that out there. What else would you say about your upbringing? For, I, I mean, I think for like the crazy ass life that I led and same with my older brother, um, like everything from the outside looking in was like very normal. Like I don't have a lot of like 
developmental trauma or childhood trauma, like a lot of things that come with somebody that turns to substance use and active addiction. There's typically like, there are some things that have happened to that individual that have led them to cope um, or have this maladaptive behavior. And that wasn't really my story. Like had a lot of friends, like did really well in school, got into my dream college, like supportive family, you know? So for like the twists and turns that my life has taken, I think we grew up in like a pretty like normal uh, community with a lot of like privileged people, you know? Totally. I mean, when I, when I, I mean, we totally grew up fine, but the school we went to and the community that we, like, we just made it in. Like, I mean, at that time, it felt like everyone from, like, we had a lot of wealthy kids at our school. Yeah, we were like four. Yeah, we were were like, in, in comparison to these other, I mean, the parking lot at our high school was like, it was like a car, yeah, yeah, it w- it was literally, but so that's what I find interesting about the story we're going to get into today. As Dean like talks about, you know, his what he's been through and his journey through like addiction to being on the complete other side. But what I find really interesting is the the what would we say like the the background information. Like usually, like I watch a lot of intervention. And it's always like the same story. Like this person was sexually assaulted. This person, you know, their dad left them. Like what I saw, like you had a strong family unit. Unless I didn't see everything. I mean, I wasn't there. 100%. It's true. Yeah. You were always, you were always a smart brother. You got into UT. I remember that. Like, I don't know. That's impossible for anyone. If you're not from Texas, you are only if you're the top 10%, you get in. So, I mean, it's a it's a big deal. You you were school was easy for you. Yeah, very much so. All right. So, I want you to take me through. So, here you are. You guys can't see Dean. He's a good-looking guy. You would never guess that there was like any history of like anything bad going on here. I want you to take me from when you were like little Dean that I knew, like, you know, in school, whatever. We started off the same. Like really, I'd say like an equal playing field to Dean that was like addicted to heroin. Right. Like, yeah. What that, like, how the fuck did that happen? Yeah. Like, like, because I feel like everyone's like, okay, heroin's where I draw the line, but like, how do you from. I, I, I gotcha. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like that line, by the way, for anybody that like gets addicted to substances is constantly pushback. Like, you'll find yourself moving that line and justifying that line until like there is no line left to push. Um, so, you know, I'm coming up on like seven years now of working or a program of recovery and living like a whole and, and a whole life as like a healthy adult. Um, and again, I grew up in Dallas, loving Jewish family, you know, like my life, like, Jewish summer camp and like fun and sports and basketball and football and had a lot of friends and always was kind of like the leader of my friend group. So was my older brother, um, Shane. And, you know, but there was always like this, there was always a bit of like rebellion, you know, like smoking pot and like skipping school and going to my grandma's apartment to like, cause my grandma was just like the coolest. Um, Like we would like smoke cigarettes and play poker. And like, this is at the age of like 14, 15, 16, like young, you know, just like that Israeli background of, of like, she didn't really see anything wrong with it. Right. And like, we would provide like company to her. And like, that was just kind of like the setup when we like got to like early high school. Um, So there was always this piece of like, curiosity and like seeking whether through like like dangerous experiences or like just getting in trouble in the neighborhood or like doing petty theft and just like being rambunctious um and you know having are you one of those kids who like would steal radars i did yeah why was that so trendy what is a radar that that was was like around our neighborhood 
it was an adrenaline rush. Like truly that's what it was. Like was not raised in poverty or like needed to steal. And like, it was simply the fact that like other people were doing it and like, you know what I mean? Like it was crazy. The radars are like those things that you put in your car to like detect if the police were coming. But I feel like, Oh, okay. I don't know which kind of, I feel like it was also like, just like, rich bratty kids who had it too but i guess maybe adults yeah. did I, I don't know i never had it it was so stupid and like i actually got in trouble and got caught by like the plano police and like it was a whole thing but um i think it was simply just like being sort of bored with life and just like looking for some sort of like rush truly like it's like you had to break a window and like do sketchy shit and like was not raised like that at all um, so there was that, you know, there were, there were components of, um, again, just like, and my friends were like good kids and smart, but like, we all, we all like kind of got in trouble and, and got away with it a lot just due to like likability and like being able to talk our way out of things. So I had an older brother who had like a little like wilder friend group, like definitely like doing ecstasy and cocaine and like party. Also, this is a one year difference. I just want to put yeah. that out there. Like year difference. Aren't you guys Irish twins? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're 11 months apart. Yeah. So, so there was that um, sort of modeling, right? Like older, cooler, this is what they do. We looked up to them. And then I also have a few cousins, two, which are older, Orin and Zeev, who are two and three years older than me. So in a way, like, I just kind of grew up fast, like at, you know, 12, 13, like, you're already seeing marijuana. And like, it's, you know, and, and, and like, being introduced to like, Nirvana and Dr. Dre, and like, you know, just like culture and music, but like, I was young, you know, I was like, very impressionable, right? And like, you wanted to like, fit in. And like, this is this is what was cool. Um, so I think I just also like grew up fast in that regard. And as I got older, I sort of fizzled out of like high, high school sports and basketball. And like, I just became like less busy, essentially. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's important for people um, with behavioral challenges or addiction challenges is like that piece of like, I think boredom is a big driver, but also like just having community and something to like show up to and participate in. What is it called? That um, quote, idle hands make for. Yeah. It's like the devil's worship or something. Something like know. that. <laughs> I'm not good with quotes, but it's something yeah. about like when but you're yeah. idle, you, you're doing yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's devilish for sure. Boredom. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Yeah. That's what it is. I just looked it up. Yeah. That was quick of you. Well, wow. so, so there was a lot, you know, there was just a lot of that, and like just growing up really fast and um, being introduced to things and not really also like not having the education outside of like a, you know, dare coming to school or like mm-hmm. it, having parents who are immigrants, like they're a little like more laid back about things. Also, not just like any, like my parents are South African, but like it's like this like Israeli parent in general are like. Like you do something wrong, they'll give you a slap. But like if, but like they're just more chill in general. Like yeah, like calls, it's like they'll be fine. It's like yeah, and like my mom grew up like in L.A. and or Israel, but then L.A. and like kind of also like grew up faster and like worked at a young age and um and like we weren't. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like okay, like Shane gotten like a hit and run and like. I got a DUI when I was 15. Like we definitely got in some trouble, you know, like Like yeah, our parents were definitely like called and, and then like they would take the car, they would do this, but it was all, I don't know. You weren't even old enough to drive. I know. I, I was, I, I would had some liquid confidence. I was drunk leaving, um, Cole Sebastian's mom's house and, I didn't even need to drive. I offered. I was like, oh, I'll drive us home. And we get pulled over. You were over. Like just like a straight up idiot. Yeah. That, I mean, 15. <laughs> like, like, straight up idiot in general. I, and I, you know, I've never, I've never seen a jail cell, never been arrested. Like that time, like the cops, like let my dad come pick me up and, and go home. And he was livid. But um, 
for all of the shit that I've done and been through, like, it's actually quite surprising that I don't have any felonies. I've never been to jail. I've definitely broken some laws, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I just grew up fast. And then I went to college. I went to UT and, like, I met like a huge weed dealer that knew my eldest cousin. And then I was selling weed for when I was like 18, like all throughout college. Like that was like my, and that really like fueled, um, I wasn't like an addict quote unquote yet, but I was like messing around with pain pills and I liked the feeling, but I always had, um, but like, you think also like it was like, what was motivating dealing like for you to be able to get the stuff or like it was a little bit of a rush also like the hustle the money like i've always even as a kid on like the uh hager elementary bus right like as a kid i'm like selling warheads for like a quarter i remember that so clearly like parents wouldn't buy them for them those little yes if like and if your parents would take you to sam's it was like oh Oh, my my god the vest that same grandma would like, anytime I had the money for something, like I really wanted a pager. Like my mom wouldn't get me one. She got me one. I wanted cartons of cigarettes to sell. She would go get them. Like she just did not give a shit. Like she was just the cool, like. Thank you, Safta. Yeah, Safta, exactly. Um, so I always had it in me to like hustle and make money and be ambitious. Um, and also like, I, you know, for that fact, like when I got into what I got into with pain pills and Oxycontin and all that, um, I was always able to like support my habit, right? I didn't have to go to like Home Depot um, and like steal tools or like rob people or, you know, do the things that typically get you arrested. Um, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to, there was still like, incomprehensible you know incomprehensible demoralization with those actions but i never had to like hurt people or do something you know i was jeopardizing my freedom though with with the selling of of drugs but um but you never came into contact with the punishment really like it was always like an escape like a way to escape it right like i mean never I don't I just like I some God's looking out for me like I'm truly like people always say like in the rooms like I'm here on borrowed time like I really am I mean I've lost so many friends to to heroin addiction or fentanyl poisoning um I've had a few overdoses I've lost some like really actually close friends that are no longer with us and I don't know, here I am, like almost seven years on this new path. And um, I feel very, I feel very blessed and fortunate that I am here and I got to show up today and be like a good son and brother and partner and, and, and podcast, uh, guest. podcast guest, podcast <laughs> guest, in the community, basketball, like all the things. Um so, yeah, I mean, we, I, you know, look, if we want to go down like that rabbit hole, we can. But essentially, you know, I, the, I, that- I do want to know where like the pain pills, like what happened there that the pain pills got to heroin? Because, again, like I always am like people are like, yeah, shrooms, whatever we yeah, whatever. Sure. OK, well, I'll take a Xanax from a friend. OK, I'll take Adderall. Like, but it's like I, I, I don't know if I'm making this up, but in my head, it's always like. I thought for people like what I hear, it's like, oh, but the heroin's like the, like the fuck no. Like, and that's like a universal yeah. rule. Like I feel like people say. Totally. So how did it get there? I mean, it look, it started off with like hydrocodone, which is pretty like basic pain pill. And then I discovered Oxycontin. Um, and, and how was would able you get to these? Like, just from like street? You weren't prescribed? You were just like... Yeah, I mean, like, they, they, well, the, the Oxycontin, like, I had a friend that would like get them from cancer patients, like low, like socioeconomic status, um, you know, like just people that didn't really need the pills and would prefer like the few hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And those were hard to get. Those were like very much so controlled, but... We just had like an inroad there. And and once I discovered those, I was probably like maybe 19 and I was living in Austin. 
And I think Shane was on his own journey in like Arkansas and Arizona and like bouncing around from colleges and we were doing them separately, but those were like really, really strong, right? Those were for people with cancer and like severe chronic pain. Um, and they were so much stronger than um, hydrocodone. And anything with, with substances and drugs is like you build a tolerance quickly. So like what used to be really, you know, two turns into four, turns into 12, turns into 20, you know, truly not necessarily with the, with the oxy content, but with like hydrocodone, right? Like two really can turn into 20 in like no time or 10, you know? And are you still showing up like in school and stuff during this time? Are you like, yeah, I mean, I was like the first few years. I mean, it got to the point towards the end where I was like, I was like in this music scene and traveling and like kind of touring with this band and like that kind of became my life. And I kind of just, and I had the money to do it and kind of was like screw school, but I was able to just get by. Right. I was able to just like pass like my, my best semester in college ironically was my freshman year of um, like rushing a fraternity, which usually people do so poorly. Like I think that was my, my best GPA. And then from there, like kind of just slowly like titrated down. Um, But yeah, we got introduced to the- Do you think that's because you were like kept busy? Like why I did well? Like, like I'm saying like, yeah, most people are like, they, it's like their GPA- goes like down when they're pledging because it's like you're literally like someone's little bitch like needing to like show up and like provide the pledge master with like cocoa water or whatever but like I'm saying but you had said before and I don't know if this is like related at all like you're like I was bored like and it's like so yeah in in relation to what the drugs did like in terms of like probably killing your motivation you actually like were probably kept very busy during pledging. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And like I was in a relationship. I was super busy, but I was also around people that were like taking school seriously. And like, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm going to class, I'm showing up. I'm like, you know, I think the only A that I, one of the only A's I got in college was in like Greek mythology, which was a class I was actually, I like loved and was like interested in. Um, I like the more like, whimsical like kind of fable storytelling that that like keeps me focused um yeah i think that was the only class i got an a in but yeah i think it's because i was just taking it more seriously and there wasn't that music scene wasn't around like the really really heavy drugs weren't really around you know it was more it was still like a little like lighter smoking a little weed taking some hydrocodone whatever so i think that it, it, a little weed, the, whimsical classes, you know, like that's like. Uh, yeah, it's like, good. Yeah. Philosophy, yeah. yeah. Alan Watts, Carl Sagan, like it was all good. Astrology, I think I did well in. Um, and yeah, and then things just like really, I mean, my, you know, my, my mom got divorced when we were 17 And also, so being like in Austin, three hours from Dallas, I also had the space to kind of just screw around and like show up for Thanksgiving and just be present and then like go back. Um, And like she was also kind of building a new life for herself. And like she's my best friend, closest person to me in this world today, hands down. She knows every every piece of my life and all the good things and bad things. And I talked to her daily. Um, but there were a few years there where I was, I I just, that, that connection, like we kind of went our own ways a little bit. Right. And my dad was really kind of in his own world and laid back. And so we were able to get away with some stuff, you know? So, and then when things progressed, a girl introduced me to heroin actually. And, um, fucking girls, you know, yeah, a really uh, super dark, like energetically, but like beautiful girl at the time, older than me, lived in LA, introduced me to that. And I, you know, I remember the first time like she did it for me from like from an intravenous standpoint. I had never, that was always the line, right? Like you can take pills, you can snort them, you can smoke them, but like 
needles like no mm-hmm. that's just like that was out right like Very trashy that's the, that was the line in the sand yeah. and you know just being um impressionable and younger whatever i i tried this thing i went back and that was in like miami um i went back to austin and i knew when that happened i had an opportunity to go down this like really really dark path that I had no idea like what was going to come of it, but I knew that it was going to be dark. Like I knew like all my friends that come from good families that were using oxys, like that was their line as well that they never really crossed my friends in Texas. Had any of your friends who passed away, passed away from heroin yet at this point before you started? No, no, nobody. Cause I just nope. want to like put it out there for anyone listening. Like I, I've been shocked by the amount of people that, I mean, I I don't even know all your friends past like our high school days, but even the amount of people I like that I know of your friends, like the amount of people who have passed away and is a lot. Right. Jade. um, There's been a lot like those are like, I'm saying like, and I don't even know like anything like what's gone on in your life. Like, past high school you know right right yeah nobody had though because nobody was doing that you know i'm wondering if like that would have affected you potentially i don't know <sighs> man i would love to say like yes it would have but like well, your head's also not clear at that point you're already using drugs like you're not like going from like a clear head to like let me put heroin in my arm right i mean one of our best friends passed away like it maybe kept us like on the straight and narrow for like five days like a week, and then you're right back to it. Like just enough to like show up for the funeral, speak at the funeral, and then it's like, you know, back to the bullshit. Which that's the crazy thing, right? Like your best friends can be dying around you and like the the insanity and the grips of addiction. I mean, it's just like, it really is like an 800 pound gorilla on your back. Like it is so hard to shake that stuff. And that's why, like, even in the world that I work in now, behavioral health, you know, residential treatment and sober living and like all outpatient services and therapy and all the modalities, like the, the rate of relapse is, I mean, like people that make it to a year, it's gotta be like one to 5% without a relapse, which is like insane. And especially like the cost of treatment and the cost of services. I mean, you know, like I work with families all over the country and really make sure like we spread things out in such a way where it's like, hey, like we need to really prepare for like six to 12 months because a lot of people and we can get into a little bit about what I do and what what you girls do. Um, you know, like 30 days is like nothing, right? That's just, that's not even like enough to stabilize. Even 90 days is really like, that's like your first little baby step to like getting your heads out of the cloud. And then if you think and about like, coming back into like the environment that you were previously in, if that doesn't yeah, change. Yeah, you stand no chance. Yeah. You literally, unless like, I don't know. I wish I'd like... <laughs> I wish that like things, it's such a nuanced and uh, like recovery is so individualized and so nuanced and success looks different to so many different people. Like, you know, like you could be on the spectrum, you could have like really gnarly family dynamics, you could have blown up like your job and like screwed up your marriage with your kids, right? Your wife and your children. And so it's like, there's so much wreckage to clean up and it's so it is such an individualized process. Like if I had all the answers and like, I do this for a living, right? Like I help families like heal and and their loved ones recover. And like, I just keep showing up and like constantly like putting out fires and like tweaking the treatment plan. Right. And you guys know exactly what like a treatment plan looks like. Um, I would have a line like across the country, you know, but it's, it's just not so, it's not such it's not so clear cut there's too like, many variables you, going on that there's you, so you know. many variables um but it is such a beautiful thing to like see the lights come back on and somebody really buy in and have the the willingness and the motivation to to start anew and i mean that's like that's the only way i can do what i do because it is so heavy 
um, it's such like an emotional toll and like the complexity of mental health having a hand in everything today, especially addiction. It just makes things very like complicated and hard and it's taxing, you know? So I have a couple questions. Um, so first off, congratulations on being sober for almost seven years. Um, it's a big coming, fucking deal. Yeah, it's a big fucking deal. Coming from a family, um, my mom and sister both recovering heroin addicts. I think they just hit three years. And amazing. Yeah, it's like, and you can just tell, you know, it's just, and they, they totally. always say, I would, I'm like always like, would you, like, do you ever have moments where you'd want to go back? We've lost a lot of um, family and friends to fentanyl, heroin overdoses. And they're like, no, not even a fucking chance in hell would I go back to that life. And I'm like, same here. Yeah. It's, it's because though, like, I promise you, like the, the only way to get to that space mm-hmm. and I'm, I don't know if they worked the 12 steps or they didn't, I, I'm, I'm guessing that they probably did, but mm-hmm. you truly have to have like a, a psychic change, like a spiritual shift in yourself a knowing of mm-hmm. God or the universe or of consciousness bigger than yourself. Um, that's the only way. Like you actually have to have some sort of of shift, shift like energetically in your heart, in your mind. Like um, what was yours? So, like, I like mean, what what got you help? Like, yeah, I mean, I tried a lot of different things. Like, I tried like ibogaine and like plant medicines and like psychedelics. And before like going to a residential treatment center that I stayed in for nine months. But when I got here to LA to Bechuva, where Shane went as well. It's like this amazing nonprofit. Uh, I was really ready. Like I was 27. I was tired of living the way I was living. I felt like a loser. Um, all my potential had like dissipated. Like I just knew that there was more Could for me. Could you see that still even in like the state you were in? <sighs> yeah, I could. Cause I moved home with my mom and like, we would talk a lot about it. And like, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready until I was ready. Like I, I made a choice. Like when I got to treatment, my brother pulls me aside and like, they didn't even want to, they usually don't take siblings. Like, and of course Shane throws a fit, like he can take my bed. I'm leaving today. And they're like, Whoa, like chill. Like we'll figure it out. And when I got out there, like he pulls me aside, like day one, right. Just got to LA. He's like, yo, I need you to piss in this cup for me. Meaning like, I'm getting high in rehab and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. So like, I kind of like avoided him. I'm just like, you're not doing well. We're in this like community of like sober people and Jewish people and therapists and counselors. And like, it's an amazing place. Like that's the only one in the world. I think that's like so built on community and spirituality, but I like avoided him. I was like, Whoa, like you're not doing well. Like, Oh, they're going to catch you. <laughs> um, but so that was kind of startling. And then he had to go on his own journey and, and he figured it out. Hey guys, Liat here. <laughs> knock, knock. Here I am telling you about some cool updates we have at Study Note ABA. I don't know if you've been over to our site lately, but we have, and I am proud to say, a shit ton of amazing BCBA, BCABA, and RBT mock exams on our site. We have been working on getting these mocks out for the past mm, six months to build up this collection of questions that are test level with detailed feedback, with opportunities to practice, We just have so many options and bundles, and the prices of our mocks have all dropped. We decided we understand the economic state, and we want you to be able to access the resources. So go check out all the different mock exams we have on our site at www.studynotesaba.com. Like, you felt like a loser, but I want to know, was there like, like, was it like you found yourself like with a like colonoscopy bag or that's not the right word, whatever I'm saying, like whatever they are that you're like, fuck, this is like so not cool. I can't even use, like I'm saying something that you're like, I'm ready because like, I just can't imagine being like, hi. Um, imagine waking up every day 
Every day is fucking Groundhog's Day. Imagine waking up every day late, like 11 or 12. Maybe you still have some heroin and coke left over from the night before and you can get well in the morning. Like that first one was always like the just like, wow, like such relief. And then you're constantly chasing that for the rest of the day. And until you're removed from it for long enough to like really get the rush you're looking for, which is typically that first one in the morning. Um, But imagine waking up every single day knowing that if you don't have what it is that you need and you don't get it within like a few hours, you are going to be horribly sick, like diarrhea, vomit, like basically like you have a flu and food poisoning and, and it's the gnar and sweating and not sleeping and like so gnarly. So every day was the same day for years. It was just like, I got to get well, like I need my, my fix. And then calling drug dealers and waiting on them. And they know that they have what you need and they're in no rush to get to you. And like, you're a slave. So years of that. Um, and it takes what it takes, right? Like it's some, some people get sober at 18. Some people get sober at 50 or 60 whether alcohol, opiates, whatever your thing is, um, whatever your poison is. But yeah, I mean, for like seven plus years, like that was my life. Like, yeah, sure. Like I would still like try to create some sense of normalcy or go on trips or show up for Thanksgiving or have friends or, you know, but like my life was. um, Like you didn't have a job. No, I had no job. The, the weed stuff got me through, like, I always had, like, some money, right? Like, I had enough money to, to, to survive. But, um, yeah, just hanging around, like, really just awful people. And, like, I was just ready. By the time I was like, okay, we're going to California January 7th of 2016, I really, like, bought in. And so I think it was, that's what we were talking about was, like, that shift, that, like, psychic change. So I had a new community. I was doing the work. I was engaged in therapy. I was being of service. I was going to meetings. I made it to a year. And I really did have this, like, beautiful, um, when I took, like, my birthday cake of one year, like, it's a thing that you celebrate sober birthdays and milestones. And I picked up a sponsee that night, meaning, like, now I had somebody to, like, take through the work of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous I got home that night and like I was exhausted from um, just the day and working and, and you know, whatever. But I was sitting on my balcony. I think I may have, I may have been having a cigarette and I was just sitting like kind of thinking about the last year and, and everything like good that had happened. Um, and like something happened legit, like from a sober state of mind where I had the power of like oneness, godliness, like radiating through my being. And the beautiful thing about it is like everything that I've come to know about like God, Hashem, whatever you want to call it. I don't, you know, the word God like is can be confusing for people, but like universal consciousness, universal mind, whatever, like radiating through my body. And what was, what was beautiful was that like, all like the fear, doubt, uncertainty that we deal with on the day to day, like all of the ego, all of the protective forces, um, totally just like dissipated. Like gives me goosebumps. Like I have goosebumps right now thinking about it. And I, you know, it's, it's a bummer because I haven't had something that powerful happen since that time, like on that depth. But I was like, holy shit, like, this is it. And like, if I can just connect to like this, this force, this energy, like, I can accomplish everything I want, I can like be a vessel, like I can create change, like, I can I'll meet my soul, like all the things come from that, I believe. And um, I felt it like I felt like energetic, like electricity, like I felt connected to that force from a totally sober state of mind. And that was my like, vital shift you know like it actually like the promise from the book like came true and you know alcoholics anonymous is it's it's such an amazing fellowship and community and it's free and like if you can just follow like the 12 simple steps and like really like dive in and and be honest and willing and motivated like 
you will experience some sort of shift. And I think that's what it really takes, right? Like nobody's going to stay sober long term from like white knuckling it and mm. just being fucking miserable and angry and just like, oh, another day sober and like really cynical. And, you know, like you have to take action and steps. Um, and so that was like part of my first year process. And but seriously, that feeling, um, which I'm sure rabbis feel often and people being of service feel often and I'm sure Buddhists feel it often and probably, you know, Christians that, that live, you know, piously, but people that really dedicate themselves to like other centeredness as opposed to like, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone lives in a perpetual state of like, I need my needs and I'm, you know, they don't realize like that they're selfish and self-centered. That's like the, you know, the root of addiction. Right. And it's masked in so many different ways and things, but like really that's the root. And so the more that I can like think, get out of my own way and think about other people uh, and be a part of a community that like holds true to that and and steps into that consciousness, like the better off you're going to be like on a really deep level. Right. Like you could still be like, you could be like not the best looking and overweight and like all these things, but like you could be so much happier than like the person that looks like they have it all simply by like caring about your fellows and like getting out of your own way and your own. So, and so that's really like the key right there is like, I've engaged in so many behaviors and actions that were so rooted in fear and in selfishness like that's the that's the, the the thing you have to unlock is like okay like it's not about me anymore right it's like how can i just be helpful and for me today that looks like coaching kids basketball it looks like you know flying home to Dallas and spending time with my mom after my dad passed away it looks like um picking up the phone when somebody needs something and i'm tired from my day right and so there's like a lot of little things that you can do. And it's, you know, it's, it's a balance. Like I still have very selfish and self-centered moments and still like a lot of fear, um, in my life for sure. Like around like security and financial means and like all the things that we all have. But I think I, you know, just through like the path that I've been on and like some of the minds that I've surrounded myself, like I've learned like what, what the remedy is to that. Right of of that like how do you deal with that like uncomfortability and uncertainty and like that fight or flight and cortisol levels and like all the things and all the stress um and i'm i'm grateful that i've that i have those tools so that leads us into what do you do these days with spearhead health yeah and how yeah. does um you know, your active service in helping and how does that translate into your mission now? It's a great question. And I, you know, look like what I do for work, I mean, it's amazing, but it's, it's still in a way, right? Like transactional. Cause it's a business mm-hmm. granted, like it's amazing. And like, I, I really help families, but it's, that is different than like, truly like altruism like you can be a helper and a healer and be in the helping field but i don't know if you get the same um sort of energy injection or like soul relief as you do when it's like i'm coaching kids basketball right and 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 so you know after a year sober i started working in treatment um I worked for a great place for a couple of years. I did a lot of different things. I got my promotions. I was a program director. I was mentoring guys. And then three years ago, I started Spearhead Health. And Spearhead Health is like a private concierge case management company. It's a family consulting business. And, you know, the the mission and the drive and the goal is to 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 give families like the best experience possible while navigating something with themselves or their loved one. So like while looking for, you know, because someone may be like manic and bipolar and like that type of treatment looks very different than like the failure to launch a kid that just can't hold down a job and smokes weed. Like those are very different things. A 45 year old that's been hospitalized and needs medicine to stay stable and 
you're working with psychiatrists and, you know, you need some stabilization. So, and, you know, it's uh, sadly, um, there's a lot of bad actors in this world, right? Because not for my business, there's no insurance involved. We help families use insurance, but there's like thousands of centers around the country. And like, if a family goes online and just like searches like Malibu rehab or like best treatment center in Texas, like you don't know who the hell is going to pick up the phone on the other line of like an admissions center or a call center. So true. And so, so we're an advocate on like, okay, we, we travel around the country. We know the clinical teams. We know different places. We've been there firsthand. There's trust built. So that's like one piece of what we do, right, is advocacy and like behavioral health navigation. Like this is what the next six months look like. We're going to use your insurance here. We're going to save resources for sober living because insurance doesn't pay for that and um, outpatient. I can just imagine like just my own experience with my family's addiction and how little resources there are and having no one to help you navigate any of this shit is, I mean, it's an added stress that leads to more addiction. Um, yeah. It's easier. It's like right? such response a effort. Yeah. But having something like this that, you know, and then, you know, I'm a big, um, like helping a families that are dealing with this. The families are just as affected in the sense that everyone's broken and everyone needs to like be on the same team to stop enabling and help. And, you know, it just, it's wonderful what you're doing. And I can only imagine that every day it's not only hard, but it's keeping you going too. Yeah. It's, it's, it is a really beautiful thing. It's just, I think the, it's not, um, it's a very like niche sort of thing. It's expensive. It's like you're paying for like time and experience and wisdom and like having the connection, like all the things, right? Like case management, being like the quarterback. And I wish that we could help more people. I mean, to do case management well, there's such a level of like organization and communication because in our healthcare system, not just in addiction or mental health treatment, But imagine like I go to UCLA Dermatology, right? I do. And then I go to Cedars-Sinai for, let's say, just like my regular checkup physician. Like those people are not integrated. Granted, I have a relationship with my doctors where I'm like, hey, can you call them? You know, but healthcare is very fragmented. And the same with with addiction and mental health treatment. Um, So often you'll see like we'll get on the phone with families and like, they'll have been to like five or six treatment centers or 10 or 20, God forbid, and have spent so much money. And like, it's always like a new team, a new therapist. And so with us, it's like, at least like, even if there's relapse and hiccups and slips, like you get the consistency of like, I have all the documentation. I know the story. Like if we're passing something off, that team is very much so aware. And like, we're kind of in the driver's seat with them of like, what's next and where are we going from here? Um, and there's so much value in, in that, right? And like, as my sister cons- would say, a new team to manipulate when she was in yeah. her, in her uh, throes of addiction. She was I like, mean, they don't know, like, as an adult, like, you don't have to sign ROIs, like, you don't have to sign a release. So, like, next thing you know, like, your family is not speaking to the treatment center, you know, they make some half assed discharge plan or treatment plan, and then you're right back to manipulating your family. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that's that's the a, a big value add is like the consistency, the same people, um, and just really understanding the space and obviously being like a walking, breathing embodiment of like a healthy adult and like having like walk through like really the fire. Um, you are I, literally like the picture of like to see someone like you, like I feel like could give so much hope to individuals either who are struggling with the addiction or the families like to be like you know because I just imagine I mean just feeling this like what hope is there like I'm literally just waiting for a call totally Uh, can you imagine being like the mom that like 20 years has had 20 years I mean sleepless nights and my son broke his neck in a car accident and like guy they've spent five million dollars on treatment i'm talking about somebody that i'm helping right now that's 37 um wow and you know five million dollars but also like getting the buy-in as you as the co-founder of this company 
like if someone didn't go through what you went through, I'd be like, you're like bullshit. You have no idea what. Yeah. Or like the therapist out of grad school that like has never like touched anything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's hard for like a client to connect with that. Right. But like saves the center's money to use um, interns. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, so it's such a, such, and you know, we talked a little bit about like human lives and people going through this, like being very nuanced and complex. That's for damn sure. But also, and I've just gotten, I just, this came to me like not long ago. I'm like, this shit is really simple. Like recovery and it's, and it's without like all of the window dressing and all the things. It is so simple, right? All, this is all it takes. It takes a little bit of willingness, a little bit of willingness just to believe that things can be different if I show up differently and, and buy into a process, even if I'm skeptical of it, Right. A little bit of willingness, a whole lot of honesty, and then being around like a community of support where like, again, that consciousness is like, we're moving towards healing and like, we're moving towards wellness. Like, you're going to be just fine. If you can just get out of your own way and take some suggestions and like buy in and step in and just do what the hell you're told and sit on your hands and just shut up and listen for a few months like, that's really all it is. I, and I, but, and, but, you know, and that, that may be dumbing it down a little bit because it is complex in terms of like trauma and mental health. And like, what is this person actually capable of, of doing and showing up for and what Medicaid, like, and what's like, it's the, hard, like the biologic, like, or the, yeah, the actual, yeah, like, biologically for sure. Yeah. And like but, getting getting well again without using, right? Before. Yeah, because totally. that's like the biggest aversion of people continuing to use is, like you said, the fear of getting sick. So it's easier to just use than it is to go through a detox. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so wild. Oh my god, it's. But I've seen just so many like I've seen so many people just get well, and I I I'm not like so heavily involved in AA anymore. Although I went to a meeting this week and it was like the most incredible incredible speaker i mean this guy was like he just had the gift you know um and it was like just super hopeful and inspiring guys like almost 20 years sober uh i'm not so involved in that community anymore that being said like i have a lot of friends that are and i still go to meetings here and there but like i did the deal right like i've sponsored people i've done the work i've written inventories i've made amends and like now like my spiritual practice in my day to day looks a little different and like i fall short on it too um but like i walk the walk you know and that's what i needed was like a year of showing up and like being consistent and working with a sponsor and like treatment is great for what it's great for but that's like that's where you're gonna create like lasting change and lifelong friends and you know so i'm gonna hold you accountable right yeah exactly get a good sponsor and like just show up right Mm -hmm. um it's just so it's absolutely like i when i talked to you in the pre-podcast i just like yeah this is like number two yeah it's number two and i'm like i just i think our pre-podcast was definitely longer yeah, we talked about yeah. a whole bunch of shit though. But totally. um, you know me, I'm like an investigator. I need to know like every single thing, like what size, what gauge was the needle you put in? How did <laughs> you feel? You, did. you feel you like you pissed your pants? Did you feel yeah. like you pissed your pants? <laughs> but Dean, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story and for continuing to do the work and giving hope and inspiration to anyone out there listening that might be struggling with addiction or having a family member that's struggling with addiction. Um there is hope. And um, thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything you guys need, you can holler anytime. Grateful to Liat to reconnect, you know, a couple months ago under, you know, the circumstances of my dad passing, but it's amazing to see you and your sister and your family and your dad and um, grateful to have you in my life. Well, that's what I want to say also. So we the Jewish community comes together when someone passes, you know, um, you go visit someone, it's called sitting Shiva. You'll go visit like the family in the house where they're basically there just for a week, you know, mourning an individual and Dean lost his dad a couple months back. And so I hadn't seen you in forever. Years, uh-huh. many years. Um, and so when you were telling me about like what you, I was like, wait, what? And I just, 
like, you know, knowing who your parents are and like both your, like you guys were like their boys. And I just could imagine how proud your dad must have like left this world, like knowing like my boys are like, my boys are okay. Like they're men now they're, they're walking the right path. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to like, you know, have any like health ailments that like they have to like leave this world, but just to leave with that sense of peace. Knowing, like, yeah. I mean, he has got to just be like watching, like so proud. So I, I'm so proud of you. I think it's amazing. Like I, when I hear of someone who like gets out of any sort of a, a like addiction, I don't know why I have this association with like heroin being like the most difficult. I, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not, yeah, in it. it's just, Maybe because, like, what I mean, they're all bad. Like, I mean, not like any of them are good and fun. Sure. <laughs> but I'm I'm so proud of you. Where can people find you? Yeah. So our website's just our company name, spearheadhealth.com. And that phone number on there would come through straight to my cell phone. So I'm happy to help with navigation and support. Um, yeah, that's it, spearheadhealth.com. And I'm in Los Angeles, but, you know, we have team members like all over the country. So, well, so amazing. You guys know where to find it. Dean, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super grateful. I hope you guys have a great rest of the week. Thanks, Thank Dean. you. And now the behavior bitches present a behavioral breakdown. Wow, Case, I'm so amazed by listening to Dean speak and to see how far he has come in this journey. And did you find it fascinating that his upbringing, like didn't have any of those antecedents that well, yeah, I was, I was you would actually, associate? I was thinking of the, um, the ACEs, the adverse childhood experience. Like I score like the highest of it, like every single box I check off. And it seems like, as he was saying, he didn't really, experience any of that. Um, it was more of like a thrill seeking behavior for him than it was escaping. a Like it wasn't like a survival thing. Like I need to make this money to survive. Right. It was more, like I said, escape, which is that nature versus nurture thing. Oh yeah. No, not escape, which I feel like is like a, a big one. It was more like a thrill seeker, like a, like a access to something. Right. Or like that automatic Mm-hmm. function. I, I found that really interesting. Just and um so like those setting events were different. And then that with that, those the MOs too, right? Like the all the background info, absolutely. I mean and different well, MOs. This, okay. So yeah. I was thinking of along the MO. So he said, wake up in the morning, right? And you don't have, maybe you have a little bit of heroin or a little bit left, right? So you're basically in a state of deprivation, which is going to create that establishing operation that's going to evoke his behavior of calling all the different, you know, drug dealers, finding his next high. And then it's like that, ah, relief feeling when he gets it, right? Negative reinforcement. uh Uh-huh. And then that's now he's in an abolishing operation, which is going to abate his behavior of drug-seeking behavior. Yeah, it's, I mean, I feel like when we talk about drug use, it's like the perfect example of talking about MOs because you'll see that, which also I thought was interesting. And because when you see a lot of people like having to like go pawn jewelry or this or that, like Mm -hmm. it was like, because you see people's MOs when it comes to drug, like you need it. It becomes like a, like you're, and and it's a CMOR, like that, like, uh oh! I see this thing empty. That's a CMOR. That shit's about to get worse, right? Mm-hmm. Like the and you're empty like plastic bag. Yeah. So you're like, oh my god! I better get it immediately to avoid even coming into contact with feeling that shitty. The other thing he talked a lot about was modeling and like having um, elders, like cousins and older brother, like modeling this behavior. So kind of like that unplanned modeling where he was just watching them do ecstasy or weed or whatever, and then all right, I'm going to fall in line. Just like you would as say like following in a subway. They were like like the hot guys in school. Were they? Yeah. Like again, heroin does not discriminate. Let's just, that's exactly like what I think is important too, because if anyone will see, you'll see a picture on our, um, on our Instagram of Dean, 
You'll be oh, like hottie, 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 hottie. You'd be like, <laughs> you'd be like, no shot. Um. So, but okay, I don't want to use this term wrong, so you'll correct me. I know you will. <laughs> you love being smart, so. You know, he was saying like a lot of it was boredom and like filling in time. Is that when you could use the word adjunctive behavior? Hell yeah, girl. I didn't <laughs> even have that written down, but yes, I love that. Okay, that's you. what I was thinking. It's like time filling behaviors. Yeah. Okay, cool. Amazing. And then did you think about this one? Hit okay, me. so he'd get in trouble, right? The, the police are thinking they're punishing or right. his parents saying no. Right. But is it actually punishment if it doesn't decrease the future frequency, Casey? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. That is right. So functioning as a reinforcer. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, oh, I could get away with anything. So it's actually reinforcing his behavior, right, of, Mm -hmm. let's say, driving 15 with a DUI. By the way, Dean, if you're listening now to the playback, that was a dumb move of you. Um, (laughs) Well, you call them stupid on the podcast, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) We're close like that. It's fine. So – But I do want to say this is an interesting point to put about contingency-shaped versus rule-governed behavior. So everything was essentially like he said, like D.A.R.E. would come to our school and like show you like a fried egg. Like this is your brain on drugs, you know, whatever it is. That's rule-governed, like telling you what's going to happen. But here Dean is using the drugs, going out, and getting away with it. Like his his dad was allowed to pick him up. Obviously, like it wasn't punishing. And so that just shows that this rule-governed behavior wasn't strong enough, right? And he Mm -hmm. really never came into contact with the contingency of a punishment that was strong enough. Like, obviously, like, getting a ticket of whatever, what, he'll go sell some more weed to be able to pay it and then move along. Yeah. No, I definitely took that away from the episode, too. I was like, wow. Maybe if just one time he was locked up or something, it might have stopped. But with someone really scary in the cell, you know, Mm -hmm. not like some other like cool. The other thing he talked a lot about was individualized treatment, how one treatment plan is not a blanket treatment plan for anyone, which is what in our field, individuals, our clients um, on the spectrum, all of the treatment plans have to be different because if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism you've met one drug addict, you've met one drug addict, right? You have no idea what their history is, what's maintaining their behavior, who is involved as stakeholders that we need to include. Um, so it was a lot of the similar like, things. Also like our ethics about. code too, in terms of like defining who the client is. Like, is it mm-hmm. just the individual with autism or just the individual who is struggling with the addiction or everyone affected by it, right? And, and mediation is huge. Like, when you're planning for this stuff, you need to make sure that the individual is going to contact reinforcement strong enough than their addiction and that those around them can continue to provide that and be a part of the treatment planning. Because without that, like he said, there's not much hope for recovery. Right. And I know we've moved a little past this now, but I have to go back to, um, you know, those situations where he was saying like, I was like, well, you were asking, where did you get these drugs from? Like, where were you getting that many like Oxycontin? And he's like, oh, we'd find like, you know, vets or someone who had cancer, like in a lower income area who needed the money. And then- More than they, yeah. Yeah. So like they were like, obviously like having matching law. Yeah. Manipulating that. And so- or unless these people were maybe using like stronger like illegal drugs at this point to so the money that uh, you don't know right but so that situation of being like um i'm trying to think so the conditionally conditioned reinforcer would be that individual right with the like that like needing to go up to that individual who has the drugs that you need mm-hmm. to like go meet up with to get it or this yeah. this vet or this cancer patient that would be the conditionally conditioned reinforcer because in that moment it's valuable. But what would you say the CMOT is, the transitive seat? I would say the need for the the or the lack, lack of, of the drug, drug, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. like the, okay. The, the lack, lack of, of drug, the drug, the need for the drug makes um, that guy suddenly valuable. Yeah, because then once you get him and you've gotten your fix, that no longer is the same condition that you were in before. Because they change moment to moment. 
Moment, moment. <laughs> I right. love this behavioral breakdown. This is good. Me too. This is so fun. And, and it's also a fun way to see like if we wrote down the same shit during the show. I know. It's like IOA. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's inter-observer agreement. Uh-huh. Oh, one last thing I must add just to show to make sure that I got something maybe you didn't. This could be like okay. a fun little competition. You love competition. I love Who competition. Gets more? Yeah. So um, about the response effort part of – and like these barriers to treatment, right? It's like sometimes the response effort to get help is so high and these barriers – and I, I do think it's something that um, needs to be worked on within the mental health field, which actually I did hear recently that insurance is now allowed to um, – bill for um, addiction as a mental health disorder. I don't know. I don't want anyone to quote me on that. I was say, I, can you cite that, please? No, but I think I remember hearing it somewhere, unless it was a dream. So don't believe it, but you could look it up, guys. All right? And with that, you know, if just what I'm saying, what I would think or I hope we could do, just my understanding of manipulating uh, behavior, is that if we could lower these barriers, right, and create – you know, lower response effort to get people into treatment and, you know, just because otherwise it's like a never-ending cycle. You're not making money when you're using drugs. You are – you can't hold a job. And then that's who – like you need to pay for – so there's a lot of things in the way, which I thought was uh, – it's sad. But I hope that like as we talk about these things and communicate it and get more people like Dean – out there doing the work, someone who suffered themselves, we could see progress. I agree. All right, guys, you know where to find us. You could find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast, our website, behaviorbitches.com. And if you like this new format of our episode, go ahead and give us that feedback and reinforce it so that we will <laughs> do this style more. And plus, go leave us a five-star review or no review at all. Love you. Mean it. Hey, guys. It's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need super. him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him. And he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm -hmm.